Growing up, there were only a couple of rules at my family's dinner table. You had to taste everything, at least two bites worth. You didn't have to like it, but you had to taste it. You couldn't just feed it to the dog, because it turns out that the dog didn't like steamed Brussels sprouts either. <laughs> Women couldn't come to the table with curlers in their hair. Men couldn't be shirtless. Most importantly, <laughs> I grew up in Texas with a swimming pool, okay? <laughs> Most importantly, there would be no fighting at the dinner table. You might have been engaged in World War III on your way to the dining room, and you might pick it up again the minute the dishes were cleared, but while you were at the table, there would be no arguing, no shin kicking, and no name calling. If you could not abide by those rules, you were invited to eat your dinner at the kitchen counter by yourself. Every meal is a sign of hospitality and welcome. Every kid knows that when you share your candy bar with the new kid on the playground, it's an act of friendship. Every parent knows that when your child tells you that they'd like to bring the person they've been dating home for dinner, it means the relationship has moved to a more serious level. And maybe that's why the two great festivals of the Christian year, Christmas and Easter, are almost always accompanied by extravagant meals in our homes. We gather for pot congregational potlucks. You know those lemon bar cookies, the gooey ones with the powdered sugar on top? I had a friend who grew up thinking that they were called Presbyterian squares. <laughs> because every time she went to an event at her Presbyterian church, they were there. The Bible itself begins and ends with a meal, an apple in the garden and the marriage supper of the lamb. In between, a widow uses her last bits of grain and oil to prepare a meal for Elijah. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Abraham and Sarah entertain guests under the oaks at Mamre. The disciples share a last supper in an upper room. The psalmist sings, Thou preparest a table before me. It's one of those meals gone awry that prompts Paul to write this letter to the church at Corinth. Now remember that when the church gathered in the first century, it was not in large public spaces. It was in private residences. And no surprise, the homes of the wealthier members were the ones that could accommodate the congregation. So they would gather there for worship and celebrate their unity in Christ and the spirit which bound them together, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then immediately afterward, a meal would be served. The problem is that when it comes time for the meal, the wealthy Corinthian Christians seem to forget what they have just said and done in worship. Instead, they fall back into old patterns. Priv privileged members get the best food and the best wine and the best seats, while the poorer members sit on the patio and eat leftovers. Congregational potluck, 51 AD. So instead of drawing the Corinthians together, the meal tears them apart. What a different picture Isaiah paints. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. 
Now, given the context, it's surprising. Just one chapter earlier, the table is empty and the cupboard's bare. Isaiah speaks of a coming judgment for the breaking of covenant law concerning matters like, matters like land ownership. The people have lost their center and their compass. When the Babylonian army takes control, the entire world of the Jewish people will be turned upside down. They will lose their homes and their livelihood, and many live as prisoners and exiles. The earth is utterly broken, Isaiah says, torn asunder, violently shaken. The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. The signs of punishment are everywhere. Everything has been laid waste down to the wine cellar. The wine dries up, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the timbrels is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased. But suddenly, all of that changes. That was chapter 24, but in chapter 25, a great feast is announced. Not only does it make up for the deprivations of exile, it's a feast that overflows with the very best that God can offer. The meat is rich, but that's not enough for God's hospitality. Instead, Yahweh mixes marrow with the sauce to enhance the flavor. The wine is the finest aged vintage that has already thrown its sediment so that the server must carefully strain it before serving. Nobody expects it. It comes as a huge surprise, and it signals that God is doing something new. Whatever pain and distress the people have been feeling, God will now wipe the tears from every face. The people celebrate with a festive banquet because even God has something to eat. God has swallowed up death forever. Whenever you see an abundance of good food and good wine. It is a sign, an eschatological sign that God's new world is breaking through. But this banquet is not an invitation-only affair. It is not just for the leaders or for the chosen people. It is for all people and all nations. That word all appears five times in three verses. This banquet is good news for everyone. Kathy Fletcher, Kathy Fletcher and David Simpson have a son named Santiago who went to the Washington, D.C. public schools. In a New York Times column three years ago, David Brooks wrote about the family. Santi had a friend, he says, who sometimes went to school hungry. So Santi occasionally invited him to eat and sleep at his house. Well, that friend had a friend, and that friend had a friend, and now when you go to dinner at Kathy and David's on Thursday night, there might be 15 or 20 teenagers and young adults crammed around the table. And later, groups of them will crash in the basement or the few small bedrooms upstairs. These kids who show up at Kathy and David's are the victims of modern poverty. Homelessness, hunger, abuse, assault. Almost all of them have seen death firsthand, a sibling or a parent or a friend. Very few have a regular bed at home. One 21-year-old came to dinner and said it was the first time she'd been around a dinner table since she was 11. 
So Thursday night has become the big social event of the week. Kids come from all over the city. Spicy chicken and black rice are served. Cell phones are banned. The kids call Kathy Mama and David Dad, and they are unfailingly polite, clearing the dishes, celebrating birthdays and graduations, demonstrating their commitment to care for one another. David Brooks took his own daughter once, and on the way out she said, that's the warmest place I can ever imagine. Brooks says that he himself started showing up for dinner occasionally about five years ago. In a culture of viciousness and vulgarity and depravity, he says, Thursdays at Kathy and David's has been a weekly uplift. I was hungry, he says, for something more than food. Last Sunday when we first gathered, I told you that I wanted to consider some of the moments in preaching where there are torn places or ragged edges or things that don't seem to fit. We saw that initially in Mark's account of Jesus' baptism when the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends like a dove. We talked about all those ragged expectations of a, of a wedding and the ragged grief of a funeral. And tonight we come to another ragged place, a junction between what has been and what might be. I have a clergy friend back home who thinks it's odd to celebrate the Lord's Supper on Easter morning, which is what we do at New Providence, especially having just done so on Maundy Thursday. But it makes perfect sense to me because it's a moment at the very edge of looking back and looking forward. I don't know how many thousands of sermons I have heard or preached in my lifetime, but one of the very few I remember came from a classmate in this very chapel. She was preaching for the weekly communion service, and she pointed out that coming together at this table is an action that embraces both past and future. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. Use this table to remember what has been. Remember how you have been loved. Remember your calling. But use it also to look forward. When, it, when you do this, whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. In the future, when you gather and celebrate, do so in remembrance of me. At this table, Christ invites us to remember the past and then to step out into the future with him. Speaking again about Thursday night dinner at Kathy and David's, David Brooks says, throughout this ugly election year, that table has been my visit to a better future, more powerful than any political tract about what we need next. This table is our visit to a better future a future in which homelessness and hunger and poverty and abuse and anger are trumped by kindness and welcome and humility and hope. This is the family meal where there is more than enough for everyone. You may have heard the story before about the missionary coming home from India near the end of World War II his church board told him he needed a furlough, and they wired the money for his passage home. But when he got to the port city, 
The missionary discovered a boatload of Jews who had just been allowed to land temporarily. These were the days when European Jews were literally sailing all over the world looking for a place to live. And these particular Jews were now staying in attics and warehouses and basements all over the port city. Well, it happened to be Christmas. And on Christmas morning, this missionary went to one of the houses where dozens of Jewish families were staying. He walked in and said, Merry Christmas. And they looked at him like he was crazy. We're Jews, they said. I know that, the missionary said. What would you like for Christmas? Well, they were stunned, but they said, well, we'd like pastries, good pastries, like we used to have in Germany. So the missionary went out and used the money for his ticket home to buy pastries for all the Jews he could find staying in the port. Of course, he had to write the mission board asking for more money for his passage home. And as you'd expect, his superiors wanted to know what happened to the money they'd already sent. He told them that he used it to buy Christmas pastries for some Jews. His superiors wired in response, why did you do that? They don't even believe in Jesus. And the missionary wrote back, yes, but I do. kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet. Good food, good wine, new life, and lots of it. Plenty to go around. Amen?